We will hear two different passages in the readings this morning. First comes from 2 Kings, verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 2 through 5, or 1 through 5. I'm getting there, I'm sorry. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neheshetan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. That's the section that made an old classroom teacher cringe with those words. I'm sorry. Second reading today comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 3 through 11. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. For they have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he was made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. So as some of you may know about me that uh, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I used to go to a lot of Tennessee football games growing up. Uh, yeah, here we go. I got an amen from over here. Here we go. Yes. All right. So uh, the Neyland Stadium, uh, where Tennessee plays, holds uh, to upwards of 104,000 people. Now, what most people don't know about Neyland Stadium, though, is that there's really just one street beside of it beside this massive stadium that holds all this many people. So you can imagine of getting into a game where there's 104,000 people trying to walk on this street. It's chaos. And I vividly remember every single weekend that we would go, we'd have to uh, start on this end and we have to get to the other side of the stadium because that's where our entrance was. And we had to fight through this crowd of people that was this massive people that were coming toward us and we were going in the other direction. Now, some of you are already panicking and your hands are sweating just thinking about the mass of people that are coming at you. But you know what that feels like when you're trying to get somewhere, you're, you're navigating through the crowd you're bumping into people. They're frustrated because they think you aren't paying attention. You're getting frustrated because you feel like you're not making any progress. Has anybody ever felt that way before? Yes. 
And so that is an idea of what it means to go against the grain. And we as believers here are called in many ways and feel as if we are going against the grain. We are actually called to do so. For if culture goes against what God calls us to be, then we are to go against the grain. But this is what it can feel like for a believer who's going against the grain of culture that you're trying to navigate through to the other side, going in the opposite direction, getting bumped by people. You feel like you're not making any progress. You're frustrating people around you. That's what it feels like. King Hezekiah, the king who we will be talking about in this series, was a king who went against the grain. He went against what culture and what everything that surrounded him and a lot of his own people, he went the correct way. King Hezekiah was a king in Judah. So for those who don't know, in 930 BC, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right after the reign of King Solomon. There was a northern kingdom, that's where uh, Israel was, and uh, that was 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel were in the northern kingdom. The 12th tribe, Judah, was by itself the lone piece of the southern kingdom. And for that whole time that they were separated, there was a king in Israel in the north, and there was a king in Judah in the south. King Hezekiah was a king of Judah in the south. And kings of this time, if you've ever read Kings, uh, the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles, every single king is measured or on a scale that's called the regnal formula. The regnal formula, if you read in Kings or Chronicles, you'll see kings such and such reigned for this many years and they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. You've seen that, that's what that is. Or kings such and such reigned for this many years and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This was the scale in which every single king was measured. They were not measured, however, on how good of a military they had or how much political clout they had as leaders and kings. They were in fact graded by their covenant faithfulness to God. That's what they were graded on. Their covenant faithfulness to God. Now, King Hezekiah's dad, who was the king in Judah before him, was King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a really bad person. He was a very, very bad king. King Ahaz brought in altars to foreign gods, such as Baal, into the southern kingdom of Judah for the southern kingdom of Judah to worship false gods. He brought those altars in. Not only that, King Ahaz also sacrificed a few of his own sons to those altars. It's important to know that this is what Hezekiah is coming out of. Hezekiah is walking in to being the king of Judah as a 25-year-old with some of his brothers who were uh, offered as a sacrifice to a pagan god. That's the culture. That's the life in which Hezekiah, as a 25-year-old, steps in as king over Judah. It was quite remarkable, the situation. You just, you just heard it read in 2 Kings 18, 
We're gonna get into Hezekiah's very first act as king. And let me tell you, it is a bold, bold move. But this is what, he, this is what it says. He removed the high places and broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah, and he broke in uh, the pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. But this is what the chronicler or, or king says at this point. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Quite a thing to say about Hezekiah when he comes from a line of kings like David and Solomon. But this is what he does. Hezekiah goes against the grain as a 25-year-old in his first act, and he calls the whole nation to holiness. He calls the whole nation back to holiness. And this is what it says in Second Chronicles, three truths that will help us understand exactly what he did. The first is this, a call to holiness removes filth. A call to holiness removes filth. In Second Chronicles 29, it says this, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, hear me, Levites. Now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. Now remember what it just said. This was in his first year, in his first month. This was the very first thing he did as king calls the Levites and the priests together. So the Levites um, were, the, were a 12th, they were the 12th tribe and they were called to, uh, to be uh, the religious leaders of all the 12 tribes the Levites were. And, and all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests, but all of the Levites were called to serve in the temple. So he gathers all of them together. He gathers all of them together and says, here's what you're gonna do first, consecrate yourselves. The word consecrate in Hebrew means to sanctify, to purify, clean the filth out that is from within you first. Then go into the holy place and clean the filth out of there. That's what he says. Clean the filth that's inside of you first and then go into the temple and clean the filth out of there. Why? Why? Because true worship only happens when idols are removed. True worship only happens when idols are removed. I have a, a lawnmower that has a bag on the back because now that I'm older, I like to not have just grass thrown everywhere. I like to look neat and tidy. I didn't know this was going to be a thing when you became an adult, but it is. So I have a bag on the back of my mower and I actually have to take breaks at certain points to empty the bag. And I found out many times what happens when you don't empty the bag, all right? So you all know for those who have bags on their lawnmowers that you get going for a little bit and you feel the bag is starting to fill up and, and uh, the lawnmower all of a sudden becomes a little bit heavier and, and things kind of start to sputter a little bit. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And uh, that's what it kind of feels like. And I'll get this thing in my mind. I'll be like, you know, I'll just get to the end of this line. I'll finish this line. And when I get to the end of this line, I'll stop it, park it. It's a good place to stop and park away from the road. And I'll pull the bag off and I'll go dump it. And then I'll come back and get going again. 
Inevitably, almost every time I don't make it to the end of the line, I get a little overambitious. I get to the end of this line, I'm like, well, I probably still got a little bit further to go. So then I'm like, well, I'll do this next line too. And then what happens is that the grass begins to fill up the back so much that the grass begins to overflow where the blades are. And do you know what it does to the lawnmower? It completely stops the blades. I didn't know grass was that powerful, but it is. When it amasses so much and it gets into where the blades are going, it doesn't hinder the blades. It doesn't cause them to kind of sputter or anything like that. No, it completely stops the blades. And so then what I have to do is I have to pull the bag off and then I have to completely dump the bag out and then I have to reach up under where the blades are and pull the grass that is amassed around the blades and pull all of that out. You see, it wouldn't work if I just said, I'll just, I'll just push the grass as far in as I possibly could or maybe I'll just move the grass to a different part of the lawnmower. Maybe the blades will start working again. No, it will not work. And when idols are at the core of our hearts, true worship cannot exist. It's not as if we can just say, hey, I got this idol, but I'll just move it to the side for a second. It's still gonna be in the middle right here, but it's gonna be kind of out of the way. That's not what it is. When he tells them to consecrate themselves, to sanctify themselves, it is to purge those idols away, to completely remove them. So what exactly did Hezekiah do? If we look back at 2 Kings real fast, it specifically tells us what happened. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Why is it this important? Because if you go back and you read about even the good kings, even the good kings, it says this, they reigned for such and such years and they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they didn't take down the high places. It says that. If you go back, I went and read through all the kings who did good in the sight of the Lord and it always said, but here's what they didn't do. They didn't take down the high places. They were acknowledged for their covenant faithfulness, but their inability to remove idols. That's what they were called. Jesus in Mark chapter seven addresses this when the disciples were Uh, getting ready to eat. They were all getting ready to eat and the disciples didn't wash their hands. And so the Pharisees went up to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples not do the traditions that we've been called to do? They will not wash their hands. So Jesus then quotes Isaiah, who by the way, was a contemporary prophet to King Hezekiah. And this is what he says. Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me in vain, Do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? Jesus goes on to say that it is not what you do that defiles you, but it is what is already there, your heart. It's your heart. You see, not every sin that we commit is itself an idol. It's a sin. The idol that is at the core of every sin is the idol of me. The idol that is at the core of every sin is the idol of me. As old as creation and the fall of man in Genesis chapter three, this has been the issue. So you may say, well, uh, you may try to deal with the symptoms in your own way. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. 
And you think, well, we'll just make sure we get a date night in. We'll just make sure we get that date night. Well, that's good. That's treating a symptom. Maybe your struggles with alcohol. You think, well, I'll just, I'll stay away from bars or any places where there's alcohol. I'll just avoid the, the alcohol aisle in the grocery store. Well, that's good. But that's treating a symptom. Maybe it's your anger. When I feel it coming on, I'll just, I'll just back away. I'll just give myself some time. I'll just go breathe for a second, kind of collect my thoughts, let my blood pressure go back down, then I'll come back. Well, that's good. But that's treating a symptom. If we only treat the symptoms of this, the solutions are only going to be what I can do. Can I do one more thing? I'll try one more thing. I'll do this. I'll do this. Instead of saying, God, take this out of me. Purify me. Remove this. That's what David says in Psalm 139. See if there be any grievous way in me. Remove this. And here's what I'm not saying is that if you do struggle with idols, if you do struggle with this particular idol or you have struggles with sin, here's what I'm not saying, that you can't come in here and worship. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's actually one of the most sanctifying things to come in here and sing about a God who saves, who God who gives grace and mercy to those of us who are sinners. Amen? Amen. Yes. It's one of the most sanctifying things that you can do. But here's a gauge, a question where your heart might be. Can I function without blank? And you fill in the blank. Can I function without sports? Can I function without hunting? Can I function without you fill it in? If those things are removed from us, what is our response to that? If our response is a frustration and an inability to be able to function or think correctly, then that might just be an idol in our life. In your life group lesson this week, you will deal with this question and talk through it as a life group. It might get personal. It's gonna get pretty real. But know that this must happen. So what do I do? Number one, if you're not in a life group and you're in this room, or if you're watching online, then uh, it's imperative that you do, that you have people who are around you who know your world, who see you on a weekly basis or so often, who know what's going on with you, who can sense if you're slipping into sin. And I would even take this a step further and say beyond that, do you have someone who holds you accountable on a weekly basis, an accountability partner who can talk to you and in the midst of the conversation look at you and say, you're struggling today? without even you having to say it. As someone who has one of those, I can't even explain to you how invaluable it is to have someone who can look me in the eye and say, you're dealing with pride today, I can tell. Because 98% of the time, I can't tell myself until they say that. Do you have that person in your life who can do that? So a call to holiness, first of all, removes filth. And secondly, a call to holiness breaks generational curses. A call to holiness breaks generational curses. 
Continue on in Chronicles. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Hezekiah is looking at all this and he is realizing this is what our fathers have left us. Hezekiah's father, uh, specifically him, but their other fathers too. This is what they have left us. Ahaz was awful. He was an awful king. And just like Moses said in Deuteronomy, that the sins of the father go way past just his own generation, but impacts to, to the fourth generation. So to give you an idea, the sins of King Ahaz leading this way in religious apostasy not only affects Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's children and Hezekiah's grandchildren. That's what's at stake And so he's looking back and seeing all this. They're worshiping false gods. They're even making offerings to the bronze serpent. That's what they are doing. They are worshiping creation, not the creator. And look at this language that is used. It says here that they have forsaken him, turned their faces from away from his habitation and turned their backs on him. Strong language that is used here. Hezekiah is saying it's, it's not just as if we've forgotten. No, we've turned our backs. We've turned our backs. He says then following, Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. So now, so in light of that, in light of specifically what our fathers have done and now what we are in turn doing, God's wrath has been poured out on us. We are a part of it. We are feeling the effects of his wrath. And he even says that we have been made an object of horror, of astonishment and hissing. What he's saying there. This is a fancy way of saying the nations around us are laughing at us. The nations around us look at us and jeer at us. Why? Because we are a people who have been called by a God living in a land of which he gave us and we don't even worship him. We worship the gods of other nations who come on in and tell us whatever we want to hear and we want to do that because it seems good at the time. So now they're all laughing at us. And then he says that we're, our, our, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons, our daughters, our wives are taken into captivity. Hezekiah is king at a time when the northern kingdom was taken over by Assyria. He witnesses a, an entirely different nation take over the entire northern kingdom. But scripture says that it wasn't only people who lived in the northern kingdom who were taken, even people from the southern kingdom of Judah were taken and killed in this siege. Because of our religious apostasy, God's wrath has turned on us and our wives and our children are being taken captive because of it. That's the state that they're in. They are at a critical place. So Hezekiah takes his stand. We will remove the filth. We have forsaken God and it is time to come back to what we No, breaking the curse of what may happen to our children 
It was about two weeks ago that a local Knoxville historian wrote an article piece about my great-grandfather, Andy. For those who've heard me preach before, I've also used him as illustration before about as a golf illustration. Some of you all may remember that. He was an extraordinary man. My papa Andy was, uh, went to be in the Marine Corps, struggled with alcohol. It got so bad that my great-grandmother and their three children left him because his alcohol was so bad. He started a printing shop in Knoxville, was approached by a man who wanted him to make counterfeit money. My great-grandfather printed a right about $200,000 of counterfeit bills. Secret Service came knocking at his door, was facing a 50-year prison sentence. It was at this point that my great-grandfather came to know Jesus. He decided to follow Jesus. He laid down the bottle for good. It was by God's grace and by God's grace alone that the court sentenced him to only two years. Ended up serving only 14 months because of good behavior. Got out. Went and recommitted his life to my great-grandmother. And she took him back. The three kids. He began working in a nonprofit ministry that took 18 to 22 year olds who were on a bad track to prison. He would take them, mentor them, take them to different prison facilities and show them what their future would be like. Took them all across the country. One year, logged over 40,000 miles in the United States alone. This eventually led him to go to Ireland and South Africa and share the gospel through this ministry. My papa Andy was an amazing, extraordinary man. And his legacy has an impact to today. What does it mean for Alan Michael in 2021 that my papa Andy came to know Jesus and laid down alcohol for good? Here's what I know, that because of that, my grandfather never struggled with alcohol. My dad never struggled with alcohol. And I, by the grace of God, have never struggled with it. And I thank God every day for my great-grandfather's willingness and courage to say that I'm going to follow Jesus and it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. I praise God that my son will not know what that's like. You see, a call to holiness breaks curses, but if that's true, then the opposite is also true. That a lack of holiness creates them. A lack of holiness creates them. So I ask you this question is a probing question. What are you doing today that you don't want your children to do when they are your age? What are you doing today that you don't want your children to do when they are your age? This is a call to holiness removes filth. A call to holiness breaks generational curses. And lastly, a call to holiness corrects our view of ourselves. 
A call to holiness corrects our view of ourselves. He finishes what he says here. My sons, do not now be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. So he's still speaking to the Levites and the priests who were there. He said, don't be negligent about what you are called to do. The word negligent means to be deceived. Their place and what they are called to do is what they are confused about. They are in fact a chosen people. The Levites were chosen to lead the 12 tribes spiritually. They were originally, they weren't even given one of the 12 pieces of land because they were so dispersed amongst the other tribes, because this is what they were called to do. They were not just part of the family of God. They had a specific purpose in what God had called them to do. What is it specifically they were supposed to do? He says it here. He has chosen you to stand in his presence, firstly, to minister to him. The term minister means to serve, to serve him. Then to be his ministers, to be his servants, to serve others. And lastly, to make offerings to him. This was a specific why Hezekiah said that, which we'll get to. But notice how God is truly the subject of this, right? That what they are called to do is all wrapped around God himself. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Our purpose is what God has made us to do. Our purpose is what God has made us to do. If we look back at Hezekiah destroying the bronze serpent, we're reminded of this story. Many of you all know this story. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. They were frustrated. They were angry. They were tired. They didn't get any rest. They were tired of the bread that they were eating. Uh, they, they, they felt purposeless. They complained a lot. They complained a lot. So God at one point sends serpents to come and bite them. They begin to die. Moses then goes to God and pleads and says, God, you've got to help. You've got to fix this. So God says, all right, we'll take a, take a serpent, put it on a pole. And when you raise it up, for those who look up on this serpent will be saved. So that's what he did. He made the bronze serpent and he lifted it up. And scripture says that when he did that, those who looked upon the bronze serpent was saved. The bronze serpent was created for one purpose, for one day. The Israelites kept it as a keepsake, a reminder of God's salvation. But as you see, what Hezekiah says, what is it turned into? They're making offerings to the bronze serpent. They are, they are taking something that was created for one purpose and it has become their ultimate. Even we can take something that is good and turn it into a God thing. That's what they were doing. It was never meant to be worshiped. So Hezekiah destroyed it so that they would not look at it anymore. So they wouldn't burn offerings to it anymore. The priests and Levites were called for a specific purpose and they were not fulfilling it. 
They were doing what they wanted to do, which brings us back to the idol of me. It brings us back to the idol of me, which started back at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. The serpent tempted them. Did God really say, if you eat this fruit, you'll die? Yes. What God meant was, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. And then they ate. And then they ate. They wanted to be like God. Now, please understand the serpent imagery that we see is purposeful. It's meaningful. Why? It was Adam who fell into sin because of the serpent's temptation. It was Moses who created the bronze serpent and lifted it up that it would bring salvation for one day. It was Hezekiah who destroyed the bronze serpent as it was taking their eyes off of God. And it was Jesus who on the cross crushed the head of the serpent who started all this back in the Garden of Eden. It was Jesus who did this. He was the fulfillment of the bronze serpent itself. It even even says in the book of John that just like the, the, the serpent was raised in the wilderness by Moses, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. It was only meant to ever reflect Jesus. Only. And Hezekiah destroying the bronze serpent was a foresight of what Jesus would do on the cross when he would crush the head of the serpent for good. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to remove the filth from within you. My blood is going to come in and wash you white as snow. He says, no longer do you have to struggle with the sins of your father because I'm coming in to make all things new. And when I come in and I take over, your purpose will be crystal clear of what I've called you to do. Is to take my name into all the nations, to make disciples everywhere. That is our purpose. That is our calling as the church to do that. It is crystal clear all because of what Jesus did for us. They had forsaken God, turned their backs on him. And that phrase hits home as Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you want to know why? God did this to Jesus so that he wouldn't do it to you. Jesus took that for you. The people of Judah turned their backs on him and he never turned his back on them. It was Jesus always. So what now? What do I do? As I mentioned earlier, get into a life group. Get into a life group. People who know your stuff and can call out sin. If I could, if I could, if I could do another illustration, I was thinking about this last night. It's almost as if uh, having an accountability partner, having a life group is like having somebody in your corner. If you're in a boxing match, you, you take a break from going and boxing and you come back and you sit down. And not only is the, is the trainer who's in the boxer's face saying, do this, you know, you, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta get inside, you, you know, you gotta get to the ribs or whatever he says. You know what the trainer also says? Hey, stop doing this. Stop doing this. That's what an accountability partner does. Say, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're doing the wrong thing. 
What else? Some of you, many of you in this room serve here at Grace, and to that we are so grateful. Maybe some of you who are, I'm going to put this, serving too much. You're doing too much. You, you want to meet all the needs of the church. Half the time you do more than us staff do. We love you. Stop. Stop. You're going to burn out. God has called you specifically to do specific things, not called you to meet every single need that we have here at Grace. Be where you're called to be. If you are in here and you hear this and you work in kids' ministry and you say, hey, Al Michael, I just don't know if kids' ministry is for me. I've been working this for 34 years, but I don't think it's actually for me. I'm, my feelings will not be hurt. You need to be serving where God has gifted you to serve for two reasons. Number one, you feel purposeful and fulfilled. And second of all, spiritual maturity is birthed when we are serving in our giftedness. That's just true. That's biblical. And lastly, you may be in this room and you or maybe listening on Facebook Live or YouTube or wherever you're watching. You hear all this, but you yourself have never given your life to Jesus. Here's what I have to say. Today, today is the day of salvation. It is my prayer that the Holy Spirit come and move in you and transform you into a new creation to wash you white as snow and to fulfill the purpose of which God has called you to do. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And I praise you for your love. I praise you that you, know, you do not leave us on our own, that you walk with us you give us the very breath that we're breathing right now. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that you send the Holy Spirit to come and move in them, transform them into a new creation. Lord, for those who are in this room who are believers, but they struggle, as we all do in this room, help us to remove the idols. Help us to remove the filth in our hearts so that we can truly focus on you. Help us to understand the weight of our sin, that it goes beyond our own consequences, but to the fourth generation. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.